um, or we just started last week a new series, um, Coexistence or Coexist, Tolerance or Love, How Jesus is the Light and the Fog. And um, it's a series to really Christians, though we hope and pray that uh, those that are not believing um, in Christ will be here among us, but that's our hope and prayer all the time. Uh, we, we hope that you feel welcome in this place to invite your friends, and we hope that if you are unbelieving that you come here and know that we want you here, and we want to engage with you. Um, but this series, to be honest with you, is really addressed to Christians because I think that we are just paralyzed by this whole message of uh, tolerance, and, and that's really what we're going to deal with this morning. So let's go back to Acts 18. I couldn't get out of here. I tried to go to 1 Corinthians, uh, but I just couldn't do it. So let's look at Acts 18, and we're going to be uh, looking at, at a number of verses in um, the book of 1 Corinthians as well. Um, Acts 18, verse 1. This is Paul's planting of the church in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And listen to this. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul was an apologetic. He believed that Christianity was objective truth that needed to be stood for, needed to be explained, and needed to be argued in the midst of the culture of the day. And yet that is not natural for anybody, including Paul. And so skip down to verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision... Do not be afraid. And we said last week, why did he have to say that? Because he was afraid, just like you and I are, to open our mouths in public. And he said, do not be silent, which many of us are, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look at this whole topic this morning. Lord Jesus, would you come and would you convince us as your people to believe what we profess to believe? We have sung this morning that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have sung this morning that you are holy, holy, holy. We have sung that your grace has come down on us like a child playing in the rain. So I just pray this morning that you would allow these truths to so soak through the pores of our hearts and souls and minds that we would be different. That we would model the love of Christ because we are becoming that love. That we would open our mouths and speak with grace and mercy and wisdom and yet boldness out of love. And that, Father, you might convince, convince the unconvinced, that you might convince the skeptic, and that, Father, you might win those to yourself that are yours. And we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the Barna Research Group uh, conducted a, a five-year study that culminated or was released in 2011 um, in a book written by David Kinneman, who is the president of the Barna Group. And um, the book is entitled, You Lost Me. And the subtitle is, um, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Faith. And uh, there, was, there was a blog this week about the book, or not this week, but recently about the book, and it, it narrows the book down into six reasons. Six reasons why young Christians are leaving the church, and here they are. Number one, the church seems overprotective. And what they mean by that is the church is ignoring the problems of the real world. So uh, those that took the study, many of them said that the church is ignoring the problems of the world and therefore not really communicating the gospel to the real issues of the world. So we're disconnected with the world. Number two, um, teens and 20-somethings experience of Christianity is shallow. In other words, the way the church is ministering the gospel to the culture is not meeting them where they are. Number three, churches come across as antagonistic to science. In other words, um, you know, the preachers and uh, believers have been belittling science and scientists. We can all relate to that. Number four, Young Christians' church experience related to sexuality are often simplistic and judgmental. In other words, preaching against those sinners out there that are living in sexual sin, ignoring the reality that we all struggle with sexual sin and sexual temptation. I would assume that's what that means. Fifth, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity, all right, which is what this whole series is about. Number six, and final, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. Can we all relate to that? Uh, even believers that doubt don't feel the freedom to stand up and say, I doubt, I have real questions. And that's why we're doing this series, okay? But notice that all six of those have nothing to do with the reality of the church's authority to stand and make truth claims. But it's how we have made truth claims. We have not worked enough to try to take the unchanging truth of the gospel and the unchanging truth of God's word to the ever-changing world in which we live in. And indeed, that's precisely where the church is. It's where we live. And we see in especially the book of Corinthians and even here that Paul is continually, now hear me, contextualizing the gospel to those to whom he preaches and speaks. He doesn't change it. He doesn't say, okay, are they going to believe in same-sex marriage or are they going to, are they going to be offended? No. He says, now how can I, how can I communicate the absolute truth of the gospel to these people where they live and how they live? And we, the greatest example of that maybe is Acts 17, which precedes, obviously, Acts 18. Listen. Men of Athens, this is Paul's sermon to the men of Athens. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath for everything. So Paul goes to Athens and he looks at 
their culture. He studies their culture, sees what their idols are, sees what they're worshiping, if you will, listens to their music, reads their literature, and comes out and says, Now, I noticed this, but here's the truth. All right, And we see in 1 Corinthians 9 that this is not some isolated incident, but it is his strategic, intentional approach. Listen, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things, we've all heard this, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." So Paul is contextualizing the gospel. He is becoming all things to all men, not changing the never-changing truth of God's word, in hopes of winning some to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet today, we are paralyzed in this, in the church, and in our culture. And I believe it's primarily because... We have retreated from the world, which I'm going to get to in a minute, but also in retreating from the world, we've allowed the world to redefine this whole concept of tolerance. Once upon a time, namely in every other generation in the history of the world, tolerance meant that two people could come together, express what they believed, disagree, and still be friends and still be respected. That's what tolerance is. But that's not what tolerance is today. What tolerance is today is this. It is living in the world and keeping your mouth shut and letting your neighbor do whatever they want to do. That's tolerance. And if you open your mouth, if you make an absolute truth claim, then all of a sudden you're intolerant. You're puritanical. You're whatever. And yet, isn't it interesting that that's a truth claim to say that you're intolerant if you actually have an opinion that disagrees with mine? We'll get to that in the coming weeks. And yet, this has been very effective because we all want to be accepted and we all want to be liked to some degree. And so as we go into the world and we have this inner conflict of of the Scriptures commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations, you know, telling people that there's one name under heaven by which they must be saved and that which they can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. All of these, you know, commands to go, to go, to go, to speak, to speak, to speak. And then we get in the culture and we know that when we open our mouth, we're going to be marginalized, ostracized, and discounted as some intellectual fool. Either... We do it, we're obedient, but we do it in a way that absolutely lacks love and propels people away. We're jerks about it. You know, we, we meet their jerkness with our jerkness. Or we say, well, the Bible calls me to love my neighbors, so I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to love them, so we sell out. And that's where I think many of us, if not most of us, live. We live in the context of either being a jerk about our faith or being a sellout with our faith.
And so how do the scriptures um, speak to us where we all live in this present day? Number one, we need to understand that love mandates proclamation. It is not unloving to proclaim truth. In fact, truth mandates that you speak it. Rachel and I have three daughters. We raised our three daughters. In our household, there was a common um, conversation, if you will, about what is appropriate and inappropriate to wear. What a 13-year-old girl feels is appropriate to wear to a dance or to school or to church can sometimes and many times does radically differ from what a parent uh, feels is appropriate. And so it's this ongoing conversation, this ongoing clash. Honey, I'm sorry, but can you go back to your room? And, you know, and then I come in and say, hey, let me just tell you how a 13-year-old boy thinks, you know. Now, I'm making truth claims. Why? Because I don't want them to embarrass me as a parent when they go in public and they go to church. Yeah, probably, because I'm not perfect and I'm a sinner. But I hope that there's something in there, there's some love in there that says, Honey, out of love for you, I want to give you this law. Out of love for you, I want to protect you. I want to help you. I I I want to make you wise to the world around you. I was thinking about that this week, and I said, there's so many flaws with that illustration, because now adults want to dress like 13-year-olds. And uh, so I said, okay, let me, let me give you another illustration, if you weren't tracking with that. Uh, and shame on us for that, by the way. Um, but let's say this. Is it unloving to let your 5-year-old son or daughter run out into oncoming traffic? Now, oh, they want to. They just think that's going to bring them all the fulfillment of the world. They think that crossing that line and hitting that blacktop pavement is, you know, mom and dad tell me not to, but oh, it's going to, it's going to give me personal freedom and fulfillment. Is it unloving or loving to say no? I mean, is that even arguable? Of course it's loving. Now, can we do this in an unloving way? Can we do this in a self-righteous way? Absolutely. But it is not unloving to speak truth and to make truth claims if indeed it's true. And that's where we have to come from, I think, in the church. We need to see this precisely what God says. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, where God gives the Ten Commandments. The very uh, preface to the Ten Commandments is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then this is my word, but this is the intent. So you shall have no other gods before me. I am the God that loves you. I am the God that delivered you for myself. I am the God that took you out of slavery so you can listen to me. You see, love mandates truth. Love cannot exist without truth and without law. Why did Paul risk his life to bring the message of the gospel to the world? We see it in 1 Corinthians, and let's look at the last sentence. I do it all. Why do I become a, you know, weak to those who are weak and um, all things to all people? Because I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Now hear me, if that is your motive, then it's going to change the way that you actually take it. 
If it's because you want your neighbor to share in the blessings of forgiveness, if you want your neighbor to share in the the message of God's love for sinners, then you will go in a distinctly different way than a person who just is being obligated or is fulfilling some commandment and thinks God is going to frown on them the next morning if they don't get you know, their, their, their gospel presentation in a conversation before they leave. You see, radically different motives. I have to please God, therefore it doesn't really matter if I'm a jerk or whatever, just as long as I get my gospel presentation out there. Or, I love you so much, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to become like you. I'm going to get in your world. I'm going to to lay my world aside. I'm going to get where you live so that I might have the, the opportunity to speak the truth because I so want you to experience the blessing of being converted to the love of God and the hope of God. And the fact that one day, someday, He's going to bring His new heaven and His new earth to bear in this world and everything good that we experience is going to be better. I mean, all of that. We want those around us to experience the blessings. That's where it needs to be because that's what love mandates. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. And He didn't send you into the world to condemn the world, by the way. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In Acts 18.5, in our passage, look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. Notice, he didn't go to the culture with the Ten Commandments. He went to the culture with Jesus. I want to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, and if you believe that He's the Christ, then you will bring your life under His Lordship. Dear friends, the, the very Hindu idea that all roads lead to God, the, the Hindu illustration goes like this. Basically, God is at the top of the mountain, but there are many paths to the top of the mountain. I mean, friends, that is the gospel of this world today. And I'll be honest with you, I firmly believe that is what many think the gospel in the church is today. That we're just one of the many paths. And I'm telling you, if that were the case, logically, rationally, go with me, if that were the case then why would Paul risk his life? Why would the twelve apostles all die a martyr's death? Why would those in um, Iraq not convert to Islam if Islam is just as good as Christianity so that, so that they don't die and so their children don't, aren't beheaded? Why? Because there is one name under heaven by which men may be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. It is not all roads lead to the same God. That is what Christianity claims. Whether you believe it or not, that is what Christianity claims. So don't change it. And therefore, it's not loving to allow the culture just to simply coexist. Here's the the fault with coexist. Christian love is better than the world's coexist. 
Because Christian love says, I'm not going to let you live in destruction. It's not an argument where I just have to be right and I want you to feel bad and, and, and you know horrible about yourself. But I know that God's truth is true and therefore to stay in it and to remain in it and to make decisions out of it and to seek to run your family and to seek to run the city by these principles, is it's be, it would be unloving for me not to oppose you. The Great Commission makes no sense. It's meaningless unless Paul was arguing, uh, unless Jesus was saying Christianity is objective truth and Paul was believing it as were the early believers. Love mandates proclamation. Secondly, loving proclamation creates tolerant community. Loving proclamation creates tolerant community. And, and what I'm trying to get at here, and I don't, there's probably a better way to say it, but I wrestled with it all week and even this morning. What I'm trying to say is, if you are lovingly proclaiming the word, then you're going to have non-Christian community and non-Christian friends. All right, let's unpack that a little bit. Loving proclamation creates tolerant community. If you love the world, not the world, but the people in this world, then you have to have friends with people that aren't Christians. You would think that's a pretty natural and easy proclamation, but we need to hear this in the church today, and I see it all the time. Recently, the Tennessee Brewery, I know the the Tennessee Brewery over here had, um, I don't know, six, eight weeks where it opened, and uh, there were food trucks, and they had a bar, and, you know, beer was there, and uh, it was just a big party Thursday through Sunday um, night at the Tennessee Brewery back here on Tennessee Street, and the whole purpose of it was to try to get exposure of the Tennessee Brewery to uh, potential buyers and get the, you know, kind of rally support for the Tennessee Brewery and hope somebody would buy it and rehab it. Uh, I don't think that's happened. I hope it does. But anyway, they put on Facebook one day they needed volunteers to help um, at the Tennessee Brewery clean up and stuff. And so I went over there one afternoon and worked with some guys, had a great time. And then afterwards, we actually went to um, the bar that they had set out, and I had one beer with one of the guys. And as we're talking, I'm hearing about his life. He was in the, in the Army and overseas, Special Forces, cool story. But in the midst of that, he looked at me and said, so what do you do? And, I mean, I knew, you know, I knew it was coming. It's happened all the time. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a minister at downtown church. And he about swallowed his tongue, and these words came out of his mouth. He said, he said, this is the first time I've ever had a beer with a minister. And I said, I said, well, guess what? I said, that's what bothers me about Christianity today. Because... We've changed the gospel in the church to say that God accepts you by what you do or don't do. And therefore, we have created a... I just went into this. I think he was standing there going... (laughs) One of the stats quoted in the Barna book is this. 25% 25 of 18 to 29-year-olds said... Christians demonize everything outside of the church. 25% of 18 to 29-year-olds said that Christians demonize everything outside of the church. There are so many things wrong with that 
Um, we just don't have time to get into it. But let me tell you why. I'm just going to have chosen to come down this road. The reason why this is so bad, that that is, that is how people view the church, that we're just going to come out if they, you know, if they admit to, you know, sin or whatever or even open a can of beer. I mean, Jesus, I'm not going to go into that. If they even, if they even, you know, open a can of beer that they're going to be judged. How in the world do we think that they're going to hear about Jesus? But this is an indictment on the church more than anything, because what it says is, is that we have preached a gospel that is not biblical. And this is what we've done. We've taken books like 1 Corinthians. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, here is a phrase. Do not associate with sexually immoral people. Now that sounds like a sermon that I could preach this morning you know, fire and brimstone. God has told you people not to associate with sexually immoral people. Those homosexuals, those adulterers, you people living together. And yet, listen, here's the rest of the passage. But um, this is what Paul says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And then he says, expel the immoral brother within you. Here's what the church has done. We have said the gospel is, do not have anything to do with those sexually immoral people. And meanwhile, every man that struggles with sexual temptation, so every man has suffered in silence. And you want to know why addiction is through the roof? Because the church has said, this is the gospel, don't associate with any of those sexually immoral people. And then the preachers have affairs. And we wonder why. Because that's not the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is Jesus came for sinners like you and me. And the church is a place for recovering sinners. And we're not recovered until, until Jesus returns. You see, what Paul did is the, is the example. Paul, by the very act of planting the church in Corinth, was saying it's not wrong for the church to be in Corinth. But what he said was this, it is wrong for Corinth to be in the church. But this is how we deal with it. Don't stop being in Corinth. Just get Corinth out of the church. Be a loving, merciful body that will not tolerate those that profess to be Christians and live any way they want to live. And we do that lovingly, and we do that with great mercy, but we confront each other in sin. Why? Because of the name of Jesus Christ. Because we worship a holy, holy, holy God that even the angels, the seraphim, have their wings, they have six pair, three pairs of wings, six wings, and they're covering their eyes because they can't even look at them. Don't think that he's a God that you can redefine marriage or redefine anything. He's the one that gives the definition. We're the one that receive it. I mean, that's, that's just reality. And so, in this context, the gospel is the most powerful motive to have non-Christian friends. 
It's because we've changed the gospel is the reason that we don't feel the freedom to have non-Christian friends. But the gospel is the very power and motive to have non-Christian friends. Why? Four reasons that I'm just pulling out. One, because God made the first move to befriend you. So you make a move and go befriend somebody else. If God can be friends with you and me, you can be friends with someone that struggles with homosexuality. Or doesn't struggle with it at all, but fully believes that that is the way men and women should live if that is their proclivity. Two, God the righteous persevered and continues to persevere in relationship with us, the unrighteous. And so therefore, you can have unrighteous friends because guess what? The only reason you're righteous is because of the imputed work of Christ, not because you're actually righteous in your works. If God looked at your deeds, you're dead just like I am. Number three, Christian righteousness, a right standing with God, is not earned, but it's granted. It's all of grace, and therefore you need to go and and act like a man or a woman of grace. And then four, right standing with God came at the greatest expense and cost to God. It is not. This is why the, the gospel of works is so offensive. Because if the gospel of works would work, God would not have had to send his own son. The reason he gave his son is because that was the only payment that was worthy to cover your sin and present us to the Father as righteous. And so we need to be people that are willing to go into the world and not just befriend those who are friendly, but Jesus said this in Matthew 5.44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I love one translation that says, Pray for those who spitefully use you. Mm. So that you may be sons and father of your, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Is it Christian to have non-Christian friends? Yes. In fact, it shows that you are a child of God. And if you don't, it shows that maybe you need to rethink if you are a child of God. Does grace define your life, or does fear and shame define your life and convenience? Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what that means is not just that, okay, now you can have a beer. But what that means is now you can go die for somebody. Because Jesus died for you. Now you can go forgive somebody because Jesus forgave you. Now you can go be persecuted and betrayed in the world and be talked about and ostracized, but come with prayer and, and thanksgiving and, and love. Why? Because that's how God treats you. And when you were his enemy, he was pursuing you. And then thirdly and finally, loving proclamation demands intimacy with God. Loving proclamation demands intimacy with God. If you wonder why you're not standing for truth in your world, it's because you lack real intimacy with God and friendship with God. Let me, let me describe this. Um, Robin Williams, let's use an illustration from him because he um, died this week and I love, uh, you know, all of us I think loved his work. Uh, but it, greatest movie of all time, not true, but... One of my favorite movies, Good Will Hunting. 
uh, Matt Damon and Robin Williams, the, the stars. This was the movie that um, Matt Damon, it was his breakout movie. He says he owes everything to Robin Williams. And Anyway, so in that movie, uh, Damon plays at, like, a brilliant young man who uh, grew up in inner city Boston and, um, you know, highly intellectual. And Williams plays a psychologist who takes him on as a client. Well, Damon's character was uh, physically abused as a child. And I don't mean just a little bit. I mean a lot. Like, he would stand up and take the beatings for his brothers and sisters, and he described one incident where his dad took a wrench and beat him. I mean, bad, bad, bad. And yet, here's the reality. Robin Williams knows, as a psychologist, that we aren't just intellectual beings. So even though this kid is one of the brightest, has one of the brightest minds in the world, he still needs relationship. Why? Because we aren't just brains. We're also emotional beings and relational beings. And we would say we know why, because we're made in the image of God. But that's not Goodwill Hunting's, uh, you know, point. Um, but as it continues... Of course, Matt Damon can't live without relationship, and so he meets a girl. They fall in love. She wants him to come to California. He says no. He begins to push her away. Why? Because what he learned early on in life is if you trust people, you'd never let anybody get too close because the people you trust will hurt you. And so he was emotionally cut off from everybody. Well, at the breaking point of the movie, Matt Damon and Robin Williams are in his office, and they're joking around, talking, and Robin Williams looks at him, and he says, Son, it's not your fault. Oh, one of the most powerful scenes of any movie of all time. And Matt Damon, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. What, no, son, it's not your fault. I know it's not my fault. And Robin Williams started invading his private space, started walking toward him. Son, it's not your fault. And finally, he reached out his arms, and Matt Damon just falls in him and starts crying. Now, why is that so powerful because of this? Tim Keller, in one of the sermons I was listening to to prepare for this, made a brilliant statement, and here it is. We are not just brains in a vat. Isn't that brilliant? Kind of tongue-in-cheek. But we think we are. That's why so many people are excited about this series. Man, we want to, intellectually, we want to get, we want to know the arguments and how we can win an argument. We are not, here's how you, you need to understand the human nature and, and how we're put together. Nobody, I said it last week, nobody comes to faith by purely intellectual arguments. Because none of us are purely intellectual beings. That's why God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. Why? Because we are mind, body, soul, and strength. And therefore, if someone is rejecting Christianity, there is no way that they're just doing it intellectually. They're also doing it emotionally. I've seen this over and over and over and over again to the point that when I'm in a conversation with somebody that rejects Christianity, the first question I, I want to ask, but I know I can't because I maybe not have built relationship and have relational capital to do so, but the first question I want to ask is this, what happened to you? I was sitting at a table, you know, one of those Japanese places where they have the grill, you know, the, the whatever. And they're doing the meat and throwing the shrimp and all that. And you're sitting with people you don't know and you're kind of like, why am I doing this? And, well, I, you know, I'm a Christian. It was about 25 years ago. And I'm like, you know, I was much more legalistic than I am now. I'm like, well, I can't get through this dinner without sharing my faith. So, so I started talking to this dude next to me. And, 
I'm like, all right, I, you know, I'm getting there, and and we, you know, I was a minister then too, and so where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church. Well, tell, you know, and then he goes to the bathroom, and his wife told me this that his mother was shot, and he's never gone to church again. She was shot and murdered at Southland Mall. I don't know why I remember that. Twenty-five years later. And so he has built intellectual arguments against God because of an emotional incident, and we all do that. Why? Because we can't help but do that. Because we aren't just intellectual beings, we're emotional beings. We're relational beings. We're physical beings. That's why God gave us physical bread, physical juice and wine, so that we can taste and know that He is good. Know it here, just here, know. Know it with everything that we are. So I'll, 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 I'll wrap it up with this. If you're here today and you're struggling with Christianity, intellectual arguments aren't going to solve it for you. It will help, but it's that you'll just keep reading books for the rest of time. What do we need? We need what Paul prayed for the people in Ephesus, Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you want to know the only way that you can really connect with God? It's to understand the emotional realities of God, and here it is. God sent His Son for you, and He is calling you this morning to receive Him by faith and say, there's nothing I can do to draw near to you but trust Jesus. Dear friends, it's the only way to God. And when we understand the height and the breadth and the width and the length of the love of Christ for us, we become intellectually convinced. And so with our minds and with our hearts, we need to come to Jesus and we need to dwell on His Word. We need to meditate on His Word. It's why we need to be living in His Word because I need to be convinced every morning, every afternoon, every night that God loves me because everything in me and everything in my life denies that. And yet when I believe it, I'm a different person and I know the freedom of Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus and you think it's just for intellectual reasons, I want to ask you, what's, what's happened to you? And, and you're cheating if you just think you're going to look at the intellectual stuff of Christianity and not deal with the emotional stuff of your life. And let's do that. I would love to do that. So dear friend, may we exalt Christ at these tables today. And may it feed our minds and our souls and our hearts because this is what he wants us to remember. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Would you bless us at these tables? Meet us and strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.